Good morning, good morning. I'm looking around the room. I think I've met just about everyone, but if I haven't met you, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors. Thrilled you made it. Um, my wife Grace and I, along with a handful of others, um, almost five years ago now, we planted this church with the dream of following Jesus together. And part of that is what we just did, singing songs of praise to Jesus. We're going to come around the bread and the cup here in a couple minutes as well. But we also love to worship God and love him with all of our minds and hearts. And so every time we come together, we study the scriptures together. Just one of the things that we do as Jesus people. So would you please uh, stand with me for a scripture reading? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born, and to us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, you guys can have your seats. Well, it's uh, officially the Christmas season, you guys, officially. Although you wouldn't know by looking at the weather outside. <laughs> Which made me think like maybe what we should do is start another hour of prayer and add it into our weekly rhythm, strictly solely dedicated to prayer for snow. I would be in for that. I know a lot of you who are trying to go snowboarding after this would be into that as well. Um, but we, we don't need winter weather to get us into the Christmas spirit because we have Target and we have Amazon. It's Christmas. They really know how to get our attention, don't they? In fact, actually, I was thinking about this this week, and I want to take this opportunity to officially object to how they target my kids with their advertising. I think it's like, it's like it should be against the rules or against the peace accords or the Geneva Convention or whatever to market toys, plastic toys to, to children at Christmas time. I think that should be illegal. It's not fair. Um, but, but Christmas is, of course, it's an incredible time of year. And if you're anything like me, all of the rituals and traditions around Christmas make you feel nostalgic. And I was uh, studying nostalgia over the last couple of weeks and getting ready for our Advent series, which starts today. And it's just this crazy thing. Um, that, that connects us with warm feelings and fond memories of our childhood and from, from the past. Nostalgia is what motivated me to, last Sunday, after the gatherings, pile into our car and drive an hour into the woods to find the perfect Christmas tree, <laughs> which was a ton of fun, but normally on Sunday afternoons after the gatherings, especially if I've taught or whatever, I like to go home and relax and watch football or whatever, but last week, I dragged a spruce tree through the forest, and it was way bigger and heavier than I thought it was actually going to be, and then we got into our house, and it was way bigger than what I had anticipated, and um, it was so big that I actually used a ratchet strap and anchored it to the wall because I was afraid of it falling over in the living room, so there's now a permanent 
permanent hole in my living room wall where the Christmas tree is at. Um, but in 15 years, my kids will still want to come back for Christmas because nostalgia is a powerful thing. By the way, um, that is not nearly the most traumatic encounter I've had with a Christmas tree. When I was in college, I worked at one of those Christmas tree lots. And just like imagine working there, dark parking lot for 10 hours with no bathroom. It's as, as uncomfortable as it sounds. It's not a lot of fun. But the most traumatic experience I've ever had regarding a Christmas tree, some of you know this story, was I was cast as the dancing Christmas tree in the third grade Christmas play at my school. And it was brutal. And you're thinking to yourself right now, like, he doesn't look like a good dancer. And you're correct, I'm, a whole, I'm not. I'm a really bad dancer. Um, but the whole reason that I was cast as the dancing Christmas tree was because they had ran out of parts. You know, all the shepherds and wise men had been taken. And so they invented new roles. And I was tall, and so they cast me as the dancing Christmas tree. So just picture me in a felt costume that goes down to my knees in green face paint. And I'm out there by myself solo dancing in front of the whole school, multiple performances as the dancing Christmas tree. It's single most traumatic encounter and experience of my life. I actually blocked it out for so many years and then we were like flipping through a Christmas like photo book and I saw myself and all of the terrifying feelings came rushing back into my memory. And um, that's when I decided I wanted to stand in front of people and communicate for a living. <laughs> no. So I'm I'm, I'm saying this so that we can take up a collection for my therapy because I'm in desperate need. No, I'm just teasing about that too. But, um, but uh, the reason I bring all of this up is, is because I think it's time that we lean in. Let's lean into the Christmas story this year. Celebrate the weather, the music, the, tra the traditions that warm our hearts. God knows that all the ads and commercials are here to stay. But more than that, Let's enter the, 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 the story of the first Christmas and let's celebrate the advent of Messiah in Bethlehem by like really living as people of true hope that there is a better future that is in store for those of us who would believe. Wouldn't it be a shame if we went this whole month and we were just like extra worried about our finances or extra calories or whatever and we totally missed out on the opportunity to immerse ourselves in the good news that Jesus is born in Bethlehem and that brings hope to the whole world. And so this year, what we want to do, every year we celebrate Advent and each year we do it a little bit differently because there's so many scriptures that point to Messiah's birth. Um, and so this year we decided to examine the Advent story through the lens of the prophet Isaiah. And I've been wanting to do this for years now because I've been wanting to study the book of Isaiah and it does not disappoint. So here we go. Isaiah uh, lived 730 years prior to the birth of Jesus, but Jesus is still like the main event or the main character in the book of Isaiah, which is astounding to me. And it's a super fascinating study if you're familiar with it. Um, it's written in a prophetic, but also often poetic style. And the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel who takes away the sin of the world is what Isaiah is all about. So here we go. 
Isaiah sits inside the story of the much larger story of God's redemption through his family, through the family of Abraham. And again, if you're new to the Bible or whatever, um, in Genesis chapter 12, God partners with a guy named Abraham. Most of us are familiar with him. And he promises to Abraham to make his descendants into a great nation and that they would like mediate divine blessing to the whole world. In Genesis 12, verse 1, he says, you will be a blessing. And then he says, all of the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So when God like starts working out his plan to save the world, he begins with calling and choosing a family. He chooses a family, which I absolutely love. So even today, we're not the institution of God or the organization of God. We are the family of God. We are sisters and brothers, and we are called together to be a part of one church, unified, to glorify, worship him, and then, of course, to be on mission to the world. And that brings us to number two. We are not chosen. The people of God were never chosen, despite the like narrative or whatever that's built even in the people of Israel from the Old Testament and some groups of Christians today. We were not chosen so that we could feel like morally superior to other people who are not a part of the family of God. That's not the point of our spirituality in the slightest. Uh, We've been chosen by God to put his power and love on display so that others will experience him too. That's the whole point. You will be blessed so that you will be a blessing. So our faith, by biblical definition, is what I always say is outward-facing. It's for the good of everyone else. And if we've lost that plot, then we've really lost the purpose and the design of God choosing us and blessing us in the first place. So hundreds of you, amen. Somebody said amen, which by the way, we can get excited about that. I'm, I'm totally good. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a good news that we've been called to this. Hundreds of years um, go by between Abraham and Isaiah And to put a long story short, the basic storyline is that God holds up his end of the promise to Abraham. The family of Abraham becomes the vast nation of Israel, and they go on to like receive blessing and miracle after miracle after miracle. They receive the Mosaic Covenant, Mount Sinai, which draws his people into an even deeper connection with the presence of God than ever before. And again, long story short, God sets his people up for success in the place of promise or the land of promise where they're designed to enjoy peace and safety, where they can uh, worship him and bring his reign to all the world. Again, it was never about an insular, like in-group of religious elites. It was always meant to be about the blessing of God being established in a place at the temple and then radiating outward towards the rest of the world. And that's what God set them up to do in the land of promise. Except um, you guys know the story, or at least most of you do. The people of Israel don't exactly hold up their end. They're kind of like our society with some redemptive qualities, but there's a lot of brokenness as well. Like us, they were kind of a mess. And so the closest thing they get to realizing this mission or this intention that God has for his people is this guy, King David, who is, the Bible describes as like a ruggedly handsome songwriter, musician, who's called the man after God's heart. So just picture Danny with a slingshot. That's David um, in, in a nutshell. 
So David, he, he shows tons of promise. He's got courage and, and passion for the house of God. And again, not just for himself and his family, but all of Israel and the rest of the world. And he's going about like realizing the victory of God in some really incredible ways. I won't like get into all of it now because it's really worth your whole life's study. Except that David has a like fatal flaw too. And his fatal flaw is he sleeps with another man's wife. And then he kills him when he discovers that she's pregnant. So it's like the Old Testament version of like a really bad reality show or whatever. So, so what is God, what is he to do with that? You know, what is he supposed to do with his people when they rebel and lack faithfulness? Well, of course, he like made a promise to Abraham But this is hundreds of years later, and they've been a part of this redemption project for a long time. But the family that he chose had lost the plot like beyond recognition. And so if God were anything like us, I think he'd like cut his losses and just figure out another way to get the job done. But fortunately for us, um, God is far more gracious and loving and patient, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness than we are. And so instead of cutting off the family of Israel or abandoning them and starting new or fresh or finding another way, God doubles down on his promise. Even to David, like right after his failure and he's living in the wake of consequences of his horrible decisions and God appears to him And he says, the Lord declares to you, this is through Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this, is, uh, this scripture is known in the world of biblical theology as the Davidic covenant. And God is essentially saying here, I'm still good on my end. Like despite everything, despite the twists and turns of this story, despite your rebellion and getting it wrong most of the time, I'm still going to bless you and I'm still going to keep my promise to you. I'm not giving up on you. The world will still be redeemed through your family line. I'm still good on my end. Such a good character of God affirmation that we have. God is promised to stay with us even through the thick and thin. So this, this uh, Davidic covenant was like the spark that the family of God really needed to know that all hope was not lost. God is actually gracious after all. So the, the words from 2 Samuel 7 became like the rallying cry and the hope of all hopes, the promise that Israel held their hat on. It became like probably kind of like what the Declaration of Independence might have been to the early framers of the Constitution. The Davidic Covenant represented hope in a better future, a future where where evil was over and God's righteousness and justice will reign forever and ever. And this hope for a better future, if you caught it when we just read it a moment ago, the, the, the promise centers on like a key figure who's the anointed one, the messianic king, 
the one who's going to come and to establish the eternal reign of God's peace. And that's exactly what God is doing through the Christmas story. How are you guys doing? Are you with me so far? Hanging with me? Cool. So by the time of Isaiah, which is like 300 years or so later, the story has just devolved even further. Israel is, um, you know, sort of descending into a kind of a chaos. It's the story of First and Second Kings, if you're wanting to sort of place it in the biblical storyline. And at the time, Israel had split into two kingdoms, Israel to the north and Judah to the south, and they were at war with each other. So the people that God had chosen to be his family, united for the cause of spreading his peace to all of the world, had not been able to get along. They broke apart and started infighting. Sound familiar? (laughs) And so they were at this all-time low in the story of God's redemption. Their leaders were corrupt, they had failed to care for the poor, and they had even set up altars to other gods. And meanwhile, while this is all going on, the global picture was getting scarier by the year. Like 2020, instead of the pandemic though, the Assyrians were brutally terrorizing the ancient Near East. And Isaiah is anticipating that the Assyrians will be on their doorstep any day now. And turns out he was not wrong about that. They were en route, marching to come and destroy Israel, and they were vastly superior. So, so if you're Isaiah or one of the faithful, what do you do when your king is weak and he's a faithless egomaniac and he's oblivious to your much more powerful em- enemy who's marching in your direction with intent to destroy you? That's the dilemma that Isaiah's in. What do you do in that case? If you're Isaiah, you cry out to God. That's the story of Isaiah. Isaiah sees the writing on the wall and he cries out to God. Interesting. Seeking God's face together. Interesting. We do that here. That's actually one of the main things that we do here at Riverbend. We are a people who prays because God sees us, he's alive, and he hears our prayers. So every single week, Tuesdays, 8 a.m., Wednesdays, 6.30 a.m., Thursday nights at 6.30, we would love for you to come and, like Isaiah, cry out to God. It's a part of our prophetic calling, if you will, in our city. And so do not miss the opportunity to join us in prayer. So um, Isaiah, as he calls or cries out to God, God reveals himself to him. And he speaks to him. Again, this just speaks to the relational faithfulness of God. When we reach and cry out to him, he responds to us. He's a very present help in time of need. And he promises to never leave or forsake. And so that is a promise that we can, you and I, choose to hope in. And so when you're going through it, maybe it's a moment like Isaiah is going through. Just turn to him, cry out to him. And if that feels foreign to you, don't know what that's all about, come Pray with me on Tuesday mornings. I will teach you how to approach God in prayer. It's the most natural thing, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful. It's my life passion to enjoy God's presence and to guide other peoples to do it. So God tells Isaiah, he says, um, he's going to purify Israel with divine judgment, which is the part of the, the scary part of the Bible that we don't really know what to do with. And so oftentimes when we get to it in our reading, we just kind of skip over because we don't really know what to do with it. It's scary. But look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, because I promise it's less scary than you think. This is what he says. So see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used 
used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares that I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself of my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore the leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. And afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So this is the promise or the hope of God's judgment. By the way, God just loves the widow. He loves the orphan and he loves the outsider and he wants his family to love them too. It's one of the most important things to him is that his people would adequately and accurately reflect his heart to the world. And so widows, orphans, outsiders, that is who we are. We, we want to love those the way Jesus does. And this is why, of course, he hates elitism and hates uh, self-righteousness and why he hates injustice in the church. Listen, without God, I am an outsider. So who am I to withhold God's love or affection or blessing from anyone? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no one. God's arms are open wide to anyone who would trust and believe. And so it is our job as the people of Jesus to demonstrate his heart and his posture of hospitality. But because Israel had refused to hear this message literally for generations, God has now telling Isaiah that he's going to purify his family through divine judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. So the Assyrians that you see off on the horizon, they are coming and they are actually going to bring my divine judgment. So this is not the message that Isaiah wants to hear, <laughs> obviously. And by the way, the, in history, we can, we can see this through the archaeological record as well. In history, that actually did happen in 720 BC. So like 10 years later, the Assyrians invaded the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and hauled them off into captivity. But notice in Isaiah that God's judgment is not to destroy Israel or to negate his promise, but it's to purify Israel so that he can keep his promise. It's a very, very different thing. He's not out to destroy his people or negate the promise. He's actually intending to fulfill it, to keep it. So he's going to restore what their corruption had ruined. And he's going to make them the city of righteousness or the faithful city again. Which is such a beautiful picture because righteousness refers to justice and equity and holiness. And faithful refers to like pure allegiance to God and God alone. And so he's saying this is how you're going to be known once again. It's going to be your name. It's going to be your title. You're going to be the righteous one. You're going to be the faithful one. Hebrews chapter 13 says that he disciplines those that he loves. He disciplines those that he loves. So like a good parent who's training their children to be kind and, and generous and selfless, God trains his people through instruction and discipline. And that's exactly what's going on here in the biblical story with the people of Israel in the book of Isaiah. They are receiving discipline. And, and in this case, it's a really difficult and harsh discipline because their sin was really great and it had been generations that they had been ignoring the call of God to care for the poor and the outsider. But I want you to imagine for a minute with me what it would be like to be Isaiah. What's it like to be Isaiah in this case? Because 
He has a prophetic window into what God is about to do. He sees ahead of the curve what's going to be happening, and he's obviously very afraid about it. And so this requires a lot of faith because David's descendants, the line that God had promised to preserve and establish his eternal reign of peace, was just a few miles to the south of where the Assyrians were aiming their army, and they knew exactly where they lived. They knew their address, and they knew where to find them. So Isaiah's job as the prophet is to be like the messenger of God's coming judgment. But he's also trusting that God is, although he's going to bring judgment, he would not allow the Assyrians to actually finish them off. He believed that God would still redeem the world through David's line, even though King Ahaz, the great, 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 great grandson of King David, is taking bribes and ignoring the poor and completely oblivious to the Assyrian threat. He's still trusting the Lord that although he's bringing judgment, he's actually going to preserve and establish his reign of peace. He's going to make good on his promise no matter what. This is the dilemma. If you are Isaiah, do you trust what you see with your eyes and the, the reality that is stacking up against the promise of God or do you trust in God's word? And see, we have the benefit of being on the other side of history, and we can read the end of the story. But for Isaiah, he had this serious dilemma, because on the one hand, he had the promise of God that he received through a vision, and on the other hand, he had just the cold, hard facts of reality. Our king is a weak and faithless person. Assyria is stronger than us. They're ruthless, and they're breathing down our necks. We can see their dust in, on the horizon. And I was thinking about that this week as I was getting ready for today, and it made me wonder about us and wonder about your situation. And I wonder if you ever feel like just the cold, hard facts of reality are stacking up against the promise of God. The things that you hope that God's going to be doing in your life and the things that he's promised you in the scripture, but everyone and everything else is like screaming at you to trust in yourself instead. And that is, quite frankly, the temptation of our day. And it was the temptation in the Garden of Eden too, by the way. It's to not trust God, but to trust ourselves instead. And this is exactly what Isaiah is facing. And I would argue that we face similar dilemmas in our day as well. So it's into that really complex, tense story where Isaiah sees these things coming and yet wants to believe the, the presence of God and in his promise. It's into that very moment when God in his just great love gives Isaiah a prophetic poem about the advent of the new king that I read at the very beginning. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to his reign. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. This is a poem. It's a prophetic poem for the faithful for the ones who dare to believe in the promise of God against the reality stacking up against it. He's saying, Isaiah, I know what it looks like. I, I know that Assyria is coming. I know that you're afraid about that. 
but you, you can trust me. I, I will come through on my end. I always have, and it's what I do. Timothy says that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. This is the character of God. He doesn't deny himself, so when he says things, he means it, and he always follows through. It's a beautiful thing about him. And if you know the story of uh, Second Kings, you know that uh, King Ahaz, uh, he dies, and his son Hezekiah takes the throne. And Hezekiah is a faithful man, and he listens to Isaiah, and together they fend off the Assyrian war machine by praying in the temple. Interesting. Prayer in the temple. I wonder where you could pray. I wonder where you could dare to trust God for things like this in your life, for divine intervention. This is what we do here. This is the kind of humans that we are. We pursue God's face. We seek him in his temple because he is, um, he's made himself available to us in the person of Jesus. Tuesdays, 8 a.m. Wednesdays, 6.30 a.m. Thursdays, 6.30 p.m. And trust me, listen, you might come up to me and be like, dude, uh, none of those times work for me. I will just, I dare you to come and do that. I dare you to doubt my tenacity about prayer because we will just add three more times that you can come and pray. And if you think I'm joking, call me on it because this is who we are. We are the people who seek God's face and his presence. We do that because of who he is. He's alive and he sees us and he hears our prayers. And when we pray, something happens. And you can be a part of a brand new awakening to the gospel in our city where people who are far away from God now, who are outsiders now, will be welcomed into the family of God, will be forgiven of sin, and will be accepted into the family of God, and will have a new hope of redemption and resurrection in the new creation. You can be a part of a story that actually matters. It's bigger than you. You can do it. You can come and pray with me. You can do it. I dare you to come. I dare you to come. You can be a part of this. Or would you want to miss it? Don't miss it. Isaiah, Hezekiah, this was not their last stitch effort. Like, I guess, I, I guess I could, there's nothing better to do. I guess I'll pray. No, this was their strategy. This was their strategy. Some trust in chariots, some trust in armies, but we trust in the Lord our God. We're tenacious about prayer. Sometimes I get a little fired up. So the good news for Hezekiah and Isaiah is that the Assyrians are sort of held off for a bit. But the like wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God figure that's promised in the Isaiahic poem is still nowhere to be found. And so again, if you're Isaiah, what does he teach us about what to do when God's promise is left hanging open and unfulfilled? And this is a question for our time. Because I know that there are expectations and dreams and hopes that you have for life that are yet to be fulfilled. And so what are we to do when there's a gap between what God's promised and what we're experiencing in our life when his promise is left hanging open and unfulfilled? I, I just think for today, there's just the one word. And the word's hope. It's hope. If you're taking notes, write that down, underline it three times because the biblical idea of hope is what God is after. So here's our like cultural imagination of hope. 
For us, hope is like optimism that's based on the odds. You know what I mean? Like, for example, um, here would be an example of our culture's imagination of hope. You know, a good portion of the population has like natural immunity to COVID, and then another good portion of the population has been immunized against COVID. And so thank God, the outlook is pretty good. And we're like the worst of the pandemic is behind us and we're headed towards a day when we don't have to be concerned about coronavirus anymore. Like that's one kind of hope. Is it's, it's optimism that's based on the odds. But then when the odds are tipped in the other direction, if the odds are bad, we say, don't get your hopes up. We say, don't get your hopes up. Because now uh, the odds aren't looking good. And so therefore we can't be optimistic. So that's our cultural perception of hope. But that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about hope. Now, when it comes to the outlook of the pandemic or your team's chances of winning the Super Bowl or the likelihood of you getting those Apple AirPod Pros that you've wanted for Christmas, it doesn't matter to me whether you confuse hope with optimism based on the odds, but that's not what the Bible calls hope. The biblical idea of hope is the Hebrew word um, yakal. Yakal, or in Greek, it's the word elpis. And um, yakal means waiting with expectation. And in fact, many of the Psalms will, will translate yakal wait or waiting on the Lord. So to yakal means to anticipate. And in the, in the biblical storyline, yakal is this sense of anticipation for a better future. And it's not based on the odds or even evidence, really. That's not what it's based on. It's based on God's past faithfulness and his promise of a better future. It's based on what God has done and what God has said he will do. It's not based on reality. So in Isaiah's case, in Hezekiah's case, they are calling in the Lord. Because despite the reality that they're facing and the, um, the, the, like the things that are stacking up against God's promise, they continue to hope, to trust, and wait on the Lord. And that's really, really good. So the odds and the evidence were against King Hezekiah. But again, he's not just lobbing prayers up in a last-ditch effort because he's got nothing better to do. His strategy was to call in the Lord, to wait and to hope on the Lord. So um, this is what I imagine the prayer of Hezekiah. It's, God, it's him crying out, saying, God, we anticipate your faithful completion of your promise. And we are here. We are anchoring ourselves in the hope that you've always been true to your word and you don't plan on stopping now. And so I can confidently say that you will come through and you will do what you've promised to do. That's what it is to your call. That's the prayer of Hezekiah. That's the prayer of Isaiah. And that's what you're being invited to as well, to in the face of circumstances, to trust in him. So um, one way to demonstrate this um, most of you know, in a former life, I was a competitive swimmer, grew up swimming. The sport was really small back in the 90s, and I was two years younger than Michael Phelps, which meant at the time we would travel around the country, and often we would see him at different swim meets and events, and we raced him from time to time, uh, and he destroyed me all the time. Um, but I got used to seeing Michael, and I got used to seeing how he raced, and I got used to seeing how he hated to lose and how he just managed to always 
pull out a win no matter how bad the situation was. Like one time I saw him swim the last leg of a really slow relay and he started in last place behind seven other national level swimmers. And yet somehow, even though they were all like well in front of them, including my team, he managed to reel everybody in. And in like hundred meters, he caught everybody and managed to win the race. It was just insane. To this day, I can't explain to you how he does stuff like that. So when I watched him at the 2008 Olympics, I'd already hung up my swimsuit at that point. (laughs) Otherwise, you know, who knows? I could have been on his relay team or something. No, I'm kidding. So I watched him at the 08 Olympics, and then that was the year that he got eight gold medals. And as I'm watching, I had a, a, a much different experience or a much different uh, expectation that's based on my experience of what I've seen him do in the past. So for example, when Michael starts a race, he's very rarely the first one off the block, so the first one to the first turn. Normally in the first 50 meters, he's a little bit behind. But that's not because he's not the fastest in the pool, it's actually how he strategizes, it's how he does it. He paces a little bit, lets people get out in front of him a little bit, and then at the end, he just begins to reel them in, and he does this every single time, and no one can close like him, no one can finish like, like him uh, in the history of swimming, no one's done it better. So I think it happened like five different times in those Olympics where he had come from behind victories and ended up winning the gold by a couple hundreds of a second, and he edged people out time and time again. And what you might be completely surprised and shocked by, I'm still like taken aback by how incredible it was, but at the same time, I never really doubted that he was able to do it, or I never really got concerned or worried when he was a little bit behind, because I knew how he raced, and I'd seen him do it like probably a hundred or more times in my lifetime how he did incredible things like this in the pool all the time. I had experience being killed by him and eating his wake. And uh, so I knew what what racing him was like. And so that's kind of what it's like to Yakal, is that despite the way things might look on the surface, God's will is in play. And God has the most authority. God has the most power. So So in the end, God always gets what he wants. His way is going to prevail in the end. That's the storyline of the Bible is that he's victorious. Not that there there aren't other competing wills at play. Not that there aren't other, other things going on in the world. But he is the authority. And he is the one of great power. So in the way, he gets his way. In the end, he gets his way. So if he says the messianic king will come and establish his eternal reign of peace, we just wait with anticipation and expectation. We can trust, we can believe that he will do it. And that's exactly what Isaiah is doing in Isaiah chapter 8 and actually really throughout the whole um, book of Isaiah. He says, I will wait or you'll call for the Lord who is holding, hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob and I will put my trust in him. So this was the sort of, 8th century BC way of saying, it might not feel like it now, guys, but God will come through on what he promised. Or the famous line from chapter 40 that some of us have hanging in our living rooms. It says, those who hope or you call in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles and they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So in other words, in Isaiah's paradigm, the weak are the faithless. We might call them the realists. But the strong are the ones who hope in the Lord. So the question of the day for us as we celebrate Advent is which one of these are we? And what are we going to be known for? You and me. 
What are we going to be known for? Are we going to the people who sort of like just give up in the face of all of the things stacking up against the promise of God, shrink back in fear and unbelief? The majority of people go that way. Or are we going to be the people who have that prophetic window like Isaiah into the future? And you know what? God has never said one thing and done another. He's faithful uh, even when we're faithless, he doesn't deny himself. And he made this promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to David. And then he's renewing that promise in the New Testament. When Jesus bursts onto the scene on Bethlehem in the first century, all of creation is completely reordered and it's a brand new day. And I believe that Jesus is going to come back and to restore us in the new creation. Like, are we going to be those kinds of people known for hope? Hope, that's, that's hope. So when we talk about the hope of Christmas, and the hope that Jesus brings. This, was, I, this is not like a, 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 like a vague, you know, trope about happiness. This is um, the, like, the thing that Isaiah is, is, is longing for and is wanting, but never sees with his own eyes. He, Isaiah is not unimpressed by the nativity scene, by the way. He's not like yawning his way through joy to the world and silent night and all that stuff. No, I, I, Isaiah is ecstatic. He, he, he is on, on, on cloud nine. He has been uh, anticipating and longing for the advent of Messiah. And he's finally come. He's someone who you can truly hope in. Jesus is the hope for redemption. Come to life in actual history. He's not just ethereal. He's actually here. He's flesh and blood. He's God incarnate. And so Isaiah is soaring because of this reality. So here's what that hope is and isn't. This is how we're going to end. The hope of Jesus is Christmas, what it is and what it isn't. It's, it's not find the silver lining in terrible situations, which is something we tell ourselves in like the quasi-Christian world of superfluous Christianity or whatever. It's just not real. It doesn't ring true. And you guys are going through too many real things to just kind of gloss over terrible situations and say, find so that's not what hope is, not according to the Bible. Hope is not drumming up false hope in some vague fantasy world. And hope is not just like hope and all of your dreams will come true. Listen, I get it. Our parents, some of you, grew up on John Lennon's Imagine. Others of us, we grew up on Disney movies and holiday movies. But following after Jesus and hoping in Jesus is not the same thing as like believing in pixie dust as a kid. Thank God. It's so much better than that. And I say that because we've never taken the time to differentiate between our cultural imaginations and the Hollywood imagination about hope or the trivial uh, versions of hope offered by quasi-spirituality with the true hope of Jesus. And so when I say the word hope, you might roll your eyes with cynicism and apathy going like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about, but you seem excited, but I am not there. I'm not hopeful about Jesus. Or I'm not hopeful about this story like I used to be. It's because we've never differentiated between our contemporary, shallow uh, versions of hope with the hope of Jesus. So don't go out and try to find the silver lining. Instead, here's three things that the hope of Jesus actually is. Hope of Jesus at Christmas is, despite our terrible circumstances or whatever we may be facing, 
we have a living and enduring hope that Jesus will return and make all things new. That's what we hope in. Amen. Amen. I love Moses. Moses is my man. What a dude. I have a few scriptures attached there for you. 1 Peter 1.3, Ephesians 1.10, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 9. We have a genuine hope. So, for example, six years ago, when my wife and I lost our twin daughters at birth, we named one of those daughters Hope. Not as cruel irony or as false hope. We named her Hope because we believe that Jesus walked out of the grave. We named her Hope because we believe in the resurrection. We named her Hope because we believe she's dancing in the throne room of God right now. And we named her Hope because we believe we're one day closer than we were yesterday. In the new creation that God has actually promised. It's so much better than just ejecting out of tough circumstances today. It's being grounded in suffering and having something real to look forward to in the new creation. And I'm not saying this because it's like a reasonable thing necessarily to believe that a dead man walked out of the grave on Easter morning. It's based on my conviction that God's word to me is true. And it's based on, I believe, actual history that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead. But I'm choosing to hope. I'm choosing to believe. I'm choosing to have faith. And the reality is with any ideological faith system or agnostic system of belief or whatever, it's all based in faith of some kind in some way. And what we're saying is actually the best bet that we know is to hope in Jesus and to hope in him. And number two, two of three, we're almost there. God's eternal kingdom is not a vague postmodern trope about happiness. It's a real, hopefully not too distant future where we are, where God is, and where his will is always done. This is what um, many in our culture would call heaven. We see that in the Bible. We also see God talking about the new creation. This is not like a fantasy world off there somewhere, you know, utopia in the sky with clouds and harps and other boring stuff. This is concrete reality in the presence of God where you and I enjoy him forever. That's the point of the new creation. There's work to be done in that era too. But we hope, we place our hope in that, in, in that concrete reality. Um, you may be familiar with the, soul, the psalm, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. So that's David, by the way, the guy we've been talking a bit about today. He says, hey, he's noticing his negative emotion and experience of life and his circumstances. And he's noticing the low state of his heart. And he says, and he coaches his heart, trains his heart. And says, no, 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 hope, hope in him. Hope in him. That's what he's talking about. Hope in the promise that's coming. This is the very real thing that we are anchored to. And I think that as we trust in him and as we hope in him, we actually be, it begins to possess us and take hold of us. And you can see it in one another's eyes and you can really truly get excited about the day that's coming. And number three, 
Uh, finally, God has not promised to bless your life plan necessarily, but he has opened the door of hope for you to enter and enjoy his covenant love forever. That's from Hosea 2 and Revelation chapter 3. So the point here is that, again, our version of hope has God coming alongside of us as like the cosmic genie in the sky who does everything that we want him to do and so that our life goes according to our plan. That's an American view of God or whatever that isn't, quite frankly, biblical. I think it's actually selling you way short on what God actually wants. It's not the full story. It's missing the point. The point is actually that his promise is to give you his presence and to be with you forever. He did promise that he would be an ever-present help in time of trouble. He did promise that he would never leave you or forsake you. He did promise um, to love you perfectly and cast out fear. He did promise to comfort you in all of your affliction. And he did promise that he's coming back. He promised all of those things. And so like I've been eagerly trying to persuade you over the last 45 minutes, like that's worth hoping in. You actually have something to hope in that's bigger than your life plan that's bigger than the Hollywood vision of feel-goodedness at holiday time, the ambiguous whatever that means nothing anymore. This means the concrete reality of God's kingdom is breaking in on the earth through Jesus. We have relationship with him. We have his presence. We get to take part. This is what that does, people, is it gives us, or excuse me, it makes us people of hope. It makes us people of hope. And so Isaiah prophesied about it. We have the benefit of knowing the prophecy and actually having it confirmed through the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem on the first Christmas. And so we've seen the fulfillment of it. We know the nativity scene by heart. We, we've seen Messiah personified. The child has been born. The son's been given. And there will be no end to his reign of peace. Like we have the benefit of being able to look back in history and see the personification of Messiah King. And so this makes us people of hope. Let's anchor ourselves in that story. Of course, you got other things that you're concerning yourself with. Maybe calories around cookies at Christmas time. Maybe it's finances and travel and all of the busyness of life or whatever. Maybe, um, I don't know, just fill in the blank. But let's not let this season go by without deepening our experience with the true story of Christmas. And let's become those people of hope. And again, in the spirit of God's promise to Abraham, would our hope not just be for ourselves and our little insular Christian club, but would it actually like radiate outwards towards the world around us? And would our, our, our hope that has possessed us begin to possess the world around us? And can you imagine what it would be like to go through this season without the hope of Jesus and the deep and dire need that our city and our civilization has without him. So will you join me as people of hope who radiate hope? Let's stand and pray together. Okay, so here's what we want to do is we want to just pray over you. And we do this often, but if you're new, I just want to invite you to open your hands in a posture of receiving from the Lord. If you're not comfortable with that, no problem. Just engage with as much as you're comfortable with. 
Father, we thank you. We thank you that even when we have been faithless, you remain faithful. And that's not just true in our lifetime, but it's been true going back in the story of God all the way to the beginning. You have not changed. You have not decided against one of the promises you made. But everything you say stands true. And so you've given us something to truly hope in. And thank you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, thank you for your humble service to us as Savior and, and, and substitutionary atonement for our sin. Like, thank you. I'm just thinking about my friends in the room who kind of wandered in here as like last ditch effort. They're just feeling lack of hope, lack of peace, lack of joy. Man, I wish I could get excited about joy to the world. I wish I could get excited about the nativity scene. I wish it meant more to me, but right now I'm just feeling empty and lost and chaotic and hopeless. And if that's you, I can empathize with that. And I know he does too. But what he wants to do is like in the days of David, just give you a spark. We're talking about here is not fantasy world. It's not rote religious chore. It's reality. Because of Jesus' coming, it's, it's our reality. And so Holy Spirit, we just pray for you to come. Just ask for you to come. And would you just rain down hope on this place? Just like all of these Christmas lights are sort of draped through the room, we just pray that your presence would come and fall on us in that same way. And would you just overcome us and overtake us with that beauty and that hope. Show us the door. So I just want to encourage you to remain attentive to his voice. I'm going to stop talking so that we can enter into worship and respond to him and hear his voice. During the next song, I want to encourage you to come forward or to the back of the room for the bread and the cup and go back to your seat because we're going to take it together as one church here in a minute. It's where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Also, this is the time to go and receive prayer at the back of the room. We'd love to pray for you. If you need hope today, if you're empty of it and you want to receive God's hope, you can do that. I promise you, it's available to you. So go to the back of the room with the praying hands. We'd love to pray for you there. And then we're going to continue in worship. The reason I don't say amen or kind of move on necessarily from this is because this is an extension of this time of prayer. We're responding to the hope of Jesus through singing and through the bread and the cup and through prayer. Jesus, we love you.